Uh, I hope you studied. I know you don't know what the subject matter is, but we're going to take a quiz this morning, and it's a 10-question quiz. And the reason why is because when we left off last week, Paul laid out what most believed to be an ancient hymn or an ancient creed. In that creed, it was things like, he appeared to us in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels. Do you remember that? When we went through that, that was statements of theology, stuff we believe and study about God. When we start talking about theology and talking about how do things work together and what is God like and studying his attributes and things like that, a lot of us turn off. We don't pay attention anymore because we think it's merely academic. There's a couple more Bibles if we have any. We can run one over here as well if you can. Um, so a lot of times we shut down and say, well, that's only mind stuff, brain stuff, school stuff. And we don't think that theology is important. I want to change that definition for you. I want to redefine theology for you. Instead of saying academic, I want you to think of theology and the study of God as learning more about the person you love the most. I want you to redefine theology as relational. It is a relationship issue. If you were to meet someone that you wanted to marry, you would sit across from them at dates and ask them information questions. Hey, where'd you grow up? So what are your parents like? What are their names? So what, what do you like the most? I mean, if you were to have an evening or maybe if I was going to buy you a present, what, what do you like? Those are all information questions and you don't consider those dry or academic. So why the study of God? To make that point, we're going to go through a test and it's going to be very similar to the early uh, shows where they would take a couple, sit them down and say, how well do you know the other person? So I have a, qu a quiz for you as to how well you know God. You ready to go? Let's do this. On your handout sheet, there's some space for some notes. Uh, you may want to write it down there. And here's how it's going to work, because last night, both services were dismal at directions. Okay? And I'm very confident that you'll be as well. Okay, so here's the point. What we're going to do is I'm going to ask the question, and we're going to wait for people to write it down, and then we will answer it together. Does that make sense? All right, cool. Let's see if that works. Number one, this, is, this might be a tough question for you, but question number one, I want you to write this down. What does God really want for his birthday for mankind? What does God really want from mankind? He spelled it out very clearly in the Bible multiple times. And I'll accept an Old Testament answer or a New Testament answer. All right, so what does God really want for his birthday? What does God really want from mankind? Could you answer that question? Why don't you write that down? Take a second here. All right. While you're writing that down, let me give you the, an, an Old Testament answer that would be acceptable. Um, in a very popular verse known as Micah 6, 8, God said, wait, what do I require of you? What do I want from you? Oh, that's easy. I want you to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. He said, that's really what I want from you. What I really want is for you to obey me, love on other people, and not pretend like you're God. Right? That's what I'd really want for my present. A New Testament answer is in Matthew. 
And Jesus said that the greatest commandment is what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. What does God really want from mankind? It's that. If you're feeling generous, you can purchase the combo pack for Jesus, which is, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's a two-for-one deal, right? Because he likes that. Wrap it all up in one big present. It'll be awesome. All right, so question number two. How would God describe himself on a resume? How would God describe himself if you were to ask God, what are you like? Not what do people say you're like? What are you like? And he audibly or wrote down on a resume. How would he describe himself? He did that a couple times in scripture. They're very famous passages. Why don't you write that one down? These are pretty tough. Yeah, maybe not. Maybe not for some of you. When God was talking with Moses, Moses said, I really want to know what you're like. He said, well, you couldn't handle all of me. And he said, all right, well, give me a little bit. And he said, all right, well, let me describe what I'm like. In the cleft of the rock, he put his hand over him. And as he passed by him, he said, let me tell you exactly what I'm like. I am Yahweh. I am compassionate, gracious, patient, overflowing with love, faithful to what I say, forgiving and just. Any of those answers would have been excellent. That's how God described himself. All right, let's get a little bit easier here. Number three, write this one down. Number three, what are the names of Jesus' parents? What are the names of Jesus' parents? He's got three of them, right? What are the names of his parents? Write these down. Okay, so three parents. All right, let's see if we can go through these out loud. Uh, what's Jesus' stepdad's name? Joseph, what's his bio dad's name? God, right? Yahweh. However you want to say it, you can say Jehovah if you'd like. What's his mom's name? Mary. All right, so you know a little bit about him. That's good. How about number four? Did Jesus have any siblings? Wait! What? I knew it was going to happen. It happens in every service. Everyone gets amped, right? All right, no, we don't wait. Of course not. Bah, forget the directions. All right. Did Jesus have siblings? Yes, he did. He had both brothers and sisters, but I'm pretty sure he was the oldest. Just think about that one for a second. All right. Cool. Cool. Just testing your virgin birth stuff. All right. Cool. All right. Number five. This is a tough one. Tough one. Just one word answer. What is the most common descriptive word used for Jesus in the New Testament? If people were describing what Jesus was like as the gospel writers wrote, what is the most common descriptive word, adjective, used of Jesus to describe his nature? This is, this is a little bit of a tough one, all right? Answer is compassionate. Compassionate, most common descriptive adjective used for Jesus. It's interesting that the first word God used to describe himself in the Old Testament was compassionate and then jesus is described as compassionate it's almost like jesus is god oh that's right he is okay fantastic uh number uh number six uh, you know the answer to this one all right so write this one down number six how did god create our world how did god create our world it's expressly stated in scripture more than once how did god create our world all right so all together now he spoke it into existence yeah all right next question what are the first recorded words that god ever spoke in the bible first recorded words god ever spoke in the bible 
He said, let there be light. Excellent. So you're beginning to know him a little bit more than you thought you would. Number eight, was Jesus ever married on earth? Was Jesus ever married on earth? All right, write that answer down. What's the answer? No, no, he wasn't. Will he ever be? The answer to that is yes to whom? The church. You. So he is going to get married. It'll be his first marriage. Probably his last. Uh, number nine. Here we go. Who are the three persons of the Trinity? Write that down. For three persons of the Trinity. Really important to know if you're on a date. Right? Okay, we got him. We got him. This is an easy one. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Excellent. All right, let's go to the last one. What is Jesus' first recorded miracle? Jesus' first recorded miracle. What initiated or inaugurated his whole ministry? He did a lot of miracles, but he did one first publicly, and that was turning water to wine. Where did he do it? Cana of Galilee. Excellent. All right. So that is theology. Now, it's highly relational to know this stuff about God is very important because you're praying and you must pray to someone you know. You read about someone you know. You ask questions about someone you know. Theology is not merely academic. It is factual, true. But it's relational. Now, for us to know these things, for us to know about God, to know theology is only useful if we begin to live it out. You see, you just knowing things in your own heart is not sufficient. It's not why you're here. Because there are people around you watching you. So I have a fill in the blank statement for you. I want you to chew on this while we go through today's message. And it is this. Live a life that God would want to duplicate. Live a life that God would want to duplicate. If God is out there trying to spread the good news, what would happen if your whole neighborhood became exactly like you? Would that be a healthy neighborhood? Meaning all the internal stuff, all the stuff no one knows about. What if all your neighbors wrestled with what you wrestle with? What if all your neighbors had the marriage like your marriage? What if all your neighbors treated their kids like you treat your kids? Is your life sufficient to be duplicated? If not, why? Because they're all watching you. Now, I called today's message fishbowl discipleship. Because everybody's watching. And God is going to allow them to see him through you. Is that a good thing? And can he duplicate your life? Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, page 840. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Let's just read a little bit of the word here. We're going to read verses 1 through 5. Pray for the word, and then we'll get started. All right? It says, The Spirit clearly says that in later times... Some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. 
They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. What's intriguing about that passage is if I was to read that in my daily devotion, I would almost likely say there's not a lot there for me to apply to my life right now and I'd have to just lock it away and move on. But when you dig into it, there's gold to be found. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that today, as we sit under your guidance and leadership, that we don't just hear, but we internalize, that we do. Take us into deeper waters, Lord. I know that in my own personal life, Lord, you've been tearing me apart. This book's been hard for me. And I know that if you call me to make changes, you'll empower me to do so. But Lord, my flesh resists. And I just pray on behalf of my brothers and sisters that you would give us an understanding and eyes to see that we might own it and join in with you taking out the garbage. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. So it begins and he says the spirit, obviously meaning who the Holy Spirit clearly says Now, obviously, we know it's in God's word now, but it's not a new teaching. Jesus taught that false teachers would come. Paul has taught more than once. As a matter of fact, approximately six years prior to this letter, in the very same region of Ephesus where Timothy is teaching, Paul warned them, when I walk out of this church, bad guys are going to backfill. Bad guys are going to rise up from within the church. They're going to be false teachers. Watch out for them. The Spirit clearly says that in later times, later times, you mean last days? Yeah, that's exactly what it means. Last days, however you want to say it. When are those? Well, they're now. How do we know that? Because it comes from a Hebrew perspective that they would chop up sections of time and if the messiah was to arrive he would inaugurate or initiate the last days not in chronological time but days as in concept when the messiah arrives till he shuts down the world those are all considered the last days we call it the church age because we know that the messiah has arrived two thousand years ago Until he returns again, that whole period is called the last days. What will happen in those days? Well, we will go through waves, but in general, false teachers will get worse and worse. And the church will begin to see more and more corruption and apostasy. We know that. The Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith. That's where we get the word apostasy. To walk away, give up, leave. They will give up the faith and follow, meaning switch allegiances, and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. What? Why in the world would you do that? That's dumb. Well, you're just going to follow a demon? You're going to switch allegiances from God to a demon? Why would you do that? Well, I don't think that a demon's going to show up and go, hi, I'm a demon. And I would love to lead you. Is that cool? No, if a demon's going to speak, he's largely going to be a bit more sly about it, yeah? 
Why? Because Satan is smart enough to know that he must masquerade as a angel of light. And just like God speaks through human instruments, us, so too will demons largely not talk to you directly, but go through other people. Do they always know that a demon is speaking through them? No. No, I would suggest to you that someone is going to follow God or someone is going to follow Satan. You don't get to just pick your own way. There's no such thing. There's always a puppet master. We don't have the wisdom to know what's going on in our world. We do not know the deeper reality. We do not know the spiritual world. We do not know the afterlife. Therefore, you're not leading yourself. No one in this world is leading themselves. We're all following someone. The only question is, who are we following? So they switch their allegiance from following God, doing it his way, for whatever reason, and shift. Just like Eve did. Following God... Saw the fruit, reasoned it out, switched allegiances to snake guy. Yeah? So now she's going this way, to deceiving spirits, to doctrines taught by demons. Now, almost always, the only way someone that's a heretic can get you to drink their bad mixture is to have a lot of truth and a little bit of lie. If they have a whole bunch of lie, you're not going to drink it. It's going to smell weird. So you got to mix in a lot of truth. So if they get into it, they're going to feel, ah, this is all right. I mean, there's a little bit of weirdness to it, but in general, it feels all right. That's how they're going to get you to take it. They follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars. Hypocritical liars. Is that what he called false teachers? Yep. Are there false teachers among us? Are there false teachers in the church today? Yeah. Are there popular false teachers? Yeah. Always have been. There will continue to be. He calls them hypocritical liars. They're not even living out what they truly believe. And they're lying because Satan is the father of lies. That's the whole purpose. He can't teach you right. Because anything right leads back to God. And he doesn't want you going that direction. So he's got to go some other way. How else does he describe these teachers? Not only are they hypocritical liars, but they, their consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. So let's ask the Pinocchio question. What's a conscience? You all remember that? What's a conscience? A conscience is your internal ability to feel or to intuitively know right versus wrong. Now, for some of us, our consciences aren't working. We have so often shut down the spirit, shut down God's word, shut down what we know to be right because we wanted to do it our own way that just like an alarm clock that goes off and you smash it with a hammer won't go off again. In the same way, many of our consciences are shut down. What does it mean that their consciences have been seared as with a hot iron? That word in Greek is where we get the word cauterize. Why are they cauterizing it? Is it because they have systematically shut it down themselves and Satan messing with their head has burned their conscience to such a degree that it's callous and they can no longer hear? Or does it mean, and these are both equal opposite uh, possibilities in the Greek, or does it mean to be branded? Y'all know that if you take a hot iron like with cattle and you brand them, it's the same word. 
whether you're cauterizing for this purpose or this purpose, is it possible, and commentators are split, is it that Satan has marked them, branded them as his, his particular slaves, and they work for him now? Is that what it means? Either way, these are bad guys, yeah? We move on. What kind of teaching are they giving these people? Well, they forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods. Now, we would look at that and we would go, well, that's dumb. I'd never fall for that. All right, well, we've got to go ancient world. Was Paul against marriage? Hmm. He gave wisdom principles, which were, it's better that you're unmarried because then you're focused on God. And you don't have to manage two different relationships. Marriage is a spiritual liability. However, he was not against it. God created marriage. God instituted marriage. Marriage is good. So why would people be against it? Well, there was actually a teaching going on in the church that not only said marriage was bad, but that it could very well rip your salvation away from you. That sounds weird, huh? In addition to that, they taught that certain foods, primarily meat, were wicked. And if you ate them, you may well forfeit your salvation for that as well. You must abstain from meat. You must go vegetarian. You must remain single if you truly honored God, because that was the highest calling. This group that was teaching such things was the beginning of a movement known as Gnosticism. Gnosticism was based on the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. They believed that if you had the secret knowledge, you become super spiritual. And part of what they believed is that all matter, matter, stuff that you can touch, tangible, is wicked and evil. Only spirit is good. So marriage is a fleshly interaction, bad. Food, especially meat, is a fleshly interaction, bad. Get rid of it. And they would go on and on and on about saying you need to starve your body out so you might be more spiritual. Well, this is garbage. But it had grown up in the church where all these Christians, a lot of them were brand new. They didn't know any better. And if you had someone discipling you that taught you this stuff, you'd buy it. You understand why God and Paul are so angry? You don't mess with Christians like that. Well, they did. But they forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created. And he created them to be received with thanksgiving. Hmm. And who are they created for? By those who believe and know the truth. This is a powerful statement in my opinion. Because it gives value to our whole created universe. Let me ask you this. Why do we have trees? Why do we have ocean? Why do we have lakes and streams? Why do we not just live with our God in a desolate wasteland? Because honestly, if it's really all about the spirit, if it's really all about let's not forget or let's just forget everything in the world, why not just walk on a desert plain through our whole existence? Why have shelter? Why have beauty? Why have animals? Well, there's a very simple yet very powerful concept that was just revealed. The purpose of all of it is for you to say to your heavenly father, thank you. Does it? You go, well, that, that's kind of silly. Really? It's the whole reason it exists. Therefore, if we cease to say 
thank you, it loses all value. Some of us have allowed, as I shared before, gratitude to bleed out of our life. It's no longer, God, thank you for the forest. It's, gosh, it's a long way to the car. Right? It's no longer, God, thank you for the roaring waves. It's, man, it smells like kelp. Seaweed. I hate the sand. Right? We're just complainers. Yet the whole purpose of creation is to create thank you. And thank you is valuable. Let me explain how valuable as we move on. For everything God created is good. How do we know that? Because when God created stuff, he said, it is good. <laughs> right? Not super deep. But it's good. The Gnostics are wrong. Matter isn't evil. It's good. Everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Now, what do you mean nothing is to be rejected? It means that what God created in its form for what it was for is always good and healthy. When we distort it or use it improperly, that is to be rejected. Marriage, good. Adultery, bad. Right? The idea of saying hemlock, good. Drink it, bad. Right? Y'all know what I'm talking about. It's this idea that we have stuff here, we're just misusing it. But the stuff itself is neutral, it's a gift. We're supposed to receive it and say, thanks. Okay, let me talk about how powerful Thanksgiving is. Before we sit down to have a meal, many Christians, we say, grace, what is that? Now, everybody, uh, if you've been here for any length of time, you know my self-imposed rules of praying for food. Everybody know those? Okay, if you know the uh, Bridgeway rules for praying over food, raise your hand. Awesome, nobody remembers it. Okay, let me restate those. Let me restate those. We do not pray over salad. That's not real food. We do not pray over fries. That's an appetizer. All right? You only pray when the main entree comes, and here's why. Because if you pray over it early... Then when the entree comes, you feel like you need to pray again. And I'm like, no, let's just hit it hard when it's there. When the big food comes, then you pray. All right, now we got the rules. Okay. If you ever hang out with me, you're going to notice that happens every time. It completely drives everyone else nuts. Okay. By the way, that's total heresy. Anyway, it's how I live. So when we say grace, what are we doing? Now, a lot of us were repeating something that we heard when we were kids and it's rote. It's almost like we do a little magical sprinkle of dust over our food, right? We got to do the little prayer. We got to do the little mantra. And what we say is we say things like bless the hands that made it, which you don't even care about. You don't even know who the guy is back in the kitchen that just made your food. You don't care about him. What are you saying that for? Then the other thing is, bless this food to our bodies. What in the world does that mean? God, reduce the calorie count. (laughs) Father, make it so the congestive heart failure that I'm going to have later because I'm eating horrible food. Make that not so, right? Okay, this is really what we're praying about. Make what this horrible food is healthy. That's what we just prayed. And if you pray the little magic dust over it, then it makes it better. Okay, come on. Let's re-rack. What are you praying for food for? You're just praying one simple concept, which is what? Thanks. 
Hey, God, look, you just gave me an incredibly cool meal. You just gave me the ability to buy this meal. You gave me this ability to be with my family. You gave me all these given things. I am not earning it on my own. I'm not doing it on my own. So thank you, Lord. It brings value and transforms it from food to worship. Do you understand what I'm saying? Go a little bit deeper, verse 5. Why? Because it's consecrated. What's consecrated mean? Makes it holy. Your meal, your life, your stuff is made holy. How? By the word of God and prayer. By knowing what God really wants and being in constant connection to him, it transforms your world into elements of worship. I didn't see that when I walked through this passage at first. Let's keep going on. Verse 6. Well, let me give you a real quick warning before we hit verse 6. Please sift the teaching you hear. Please sift all the teaching you hear. Anything you hear from this pulpit, you sift it. Just because you love me does not mean I'm accurate. You always look through what I say. You test it against Scripture. And I want you to watch the stuff that you're listening to on the radio, the stuff you're watching on TV, and the stuff that's coming through the Internet. I want you to sift it just because they're nice, just because they sound like, eh, in general, that's pretty good. Be very careful because false teachers will arise within our midst. And we will not, I pray, give them a hearing in our heart. We must sift. Go on to verse 6. He said, now, young pastor Timothy, if you point these things out to all the brothers, then you'll be a good diakonos of Christ Jesus. Last time we called it deacon. This time we call it minister. Why? Because remember, remember the definition is humble servant. If you point these things out to everybody else and you're helping them out, that makes you a good servant. A good servant who was brought up in the truths of the faith. Remember, Timothy was raised as a good Jewish boy by his mom. Believed in the Lord, knew the scriptures backwards and forwards. Got saved when Paul came through town. Became a great Christian young man. Tracked in, hooked up with Paul to be his apprentice. And now they've been together for 15 years. And he was still feeding on what Jesus said. He was still allowing the gospel to change his life. You, will be, you have been brought up in the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. Therefore, have nothing to do with godless myths, secular questions and guesses and non-God stuff. Don't get caught up in all that in your society. And have nothing to do with old wives' tales. In the Greek society, they used this phrase somewhat derogatory towards older women. But they said... You know how you have a senile old grandma who keeps telling you stories that totally aren't true? That's literally what it means. It means, so yeah, kind of like that. And it used the word for anything that was idle chatter. Well, the whole time someone's talking and it's just garbage. It doesn't mean anything. It's almost like all the little kids are like, you know what? I have no idea what you're talking about, grandma, but at some point I'm getting candy, right? So I'm going to keep staring at you and I will nod and I will smile. But I don't think you're in this world anymore. Right? 
He said, yeah, stop doing that in the church. Stop allowing that stuff around you where people are just talking about nonsense. Rather, train yourself. Train yourself to be godly. Gymnasi is the word. Where we get the word gymnasium from. Rather, get in the gym. In that area of the world is where we get stuff like marathons and the ancient Greek games and the Ismian games and all these things are from around that same area of the world. And Paul knew that there were local gymnasiums where young men would train day and night. So he would use these analogies. He said, get in the gym, stop wasting your time and train yourself. Get in, sweat it out and fix it. Become something different. Verse 18. Train yourself to be godly for physical training is of some value, meaning, yeah, that's great that they're working on their bodies, but that's so limited. All right. So it helps one part of your body physical, but it doesn't do anything for your spiritual life. And not only that, but it's only for this world. When we transfer and get our new bodies for the next world, it's not going to matter how ripped you are. He's like, all right, it has some value, but not nothing like godliness. Godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the one to come. All right, let me give you another couple challenges. Please be the one in your group of friends that encourages, prays for, and lifts the level of conversation. Do not be the drag in your relationships. You know where someone's trying to talk about the Lord and you're like, I'm bored. Can we just talk about something else, please? Don't be that guy or that girl. Be the one that's going to take it to the next level, but in a very natural way. Not in a way where you're kind of like, hey guys, I realize that we're having fun. Let's stop for a moment. And can we just ponder what God might be doing here? Now you're just weird. No one wants to hang out with you. All right? No, no, no. Let's be much more natural. Natural in the way of you're hanging out and you're, you're screwing around and laughing and joking with your friends. And then right in the middle of it, at some point when things die down, you go, dude, hey, what's God doing in your life? That's it. That's pretty natural. Or you say, uh, you're talking from a girlfriend to a girlfriend and you're saying, hey, hon, where you at? You okay? I mean, last time we talked, you were tore up and I've been praying about it. You all right? That's the kind of friendships we need to develop. We need to be the one to lift that up and to consistently, number two, stir people to go deeper. Hey, are, you know, what are you learning? When you ask somebody, what are you learning spiritually? And their answer is nothing that gives them a thought. Maybe I should have something. Be the one to keep pushing the relationships around you into Jesus. We pick it up in the. Verse 9, this is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance, he said. This is something important. And for this, what I'm about to say next, Paul said, we as a team labor and strive. We work hard in ministry to the point of exhaustion. And we agonize in an athletic way of straining and leaving it all on the mat. What I'm about to say next, Timothy, you know we sweat over. What is so important to Paul? That we have put our hope in the living God. You're like, what? Why is that important? Because I'll tell you right now, the fact that all of you showed up and you're still alive today means you have some sort of hope. If you didn't have hope, you wouldn't have gone anywhere outside the house. Nor would you remain in this world. You would have taken your life. We have 
some elements of hope for a believer. We have tremendous hope because we have placed our hope in living God who's actively moving on our behalf. He's doing stuff. We have a large amount of hope for tomorrow. And he is not just the living God as opposed to the dead God of idolatry. But he is the God who is the savior of all men and especially of those who believe. What does that mean? It doesn't mean everyone's getting saved. How do we know that? Because the Bible says majority won't. So what's it mean? How is he the savior of all men? Well, a couple different analogies that we can spin. One of them is to redefine what savior means. The word soter is savior. Caesar used that. He said, I want you all to call me savior. What was he talking about? Think about the Old Testament way of saying it. In the book of Judges, there were systematic people, men and women, that were raised up by God to deliver Israel. They were called deliverers, right? That's the same word. So anyone that functions as a freeing agent or anyone that functions as a massive blessing to a group of people, anyone that functions as a rescuer or um, one that is a great help, those are called saviors. In one sense, God is the savior of all mankind in the sheer reason that he has brought blessing, rain on the just and the unjust. That he, he constantly feeds the animals and feeds the wicked. In that sense, he is a general savior, but he's a super special savior to his kids because he's taken them home. One commentator said it this way. I thought it was brilliant. He said, all the world gets to come out of Egypt, but only God's kids get to go to the promised land. God has broken the chains, the bondage of Satan. By sending Jesus to die on the cross for the sins of the whole world. But only for those whom saving faith comes does it have its full value. Let's finish up with these last passage, 11 through 16, verse 11. Timothy, Mr. Timid, I want you to command and teach these things. I want you to insist on them. I want you to instruct them. I want you to explain them. Command and teach these things. And don't you dare let anyone look down on you because you're young. Okay, this is a huge deal to me in my ministry. I started as pastor here at the age of 24. To me, it was a big deal because everyone was older than me. So I was always leading those that had more life experience. I didn't have any kids. I was newly married. They had kids. They had already been married. Some of them. And I was coming in as a, a young kid with a certain amount of experience and wisdom, but still just young. Why would they listen to anything I had to say? Why, would I ha why am I suddenly allowed to run a church? Because it was not about Lance. It was whether or not I was gifted and called to fulfill an office. Timothy was fulfilling an office, and Paul said, don't let them shut you down because you're young. How young was Timothy? Well, we don't know. They've been together for 15 years, and he's still being called young. So how old was he when they first hooked up together? Well, let's say he was 15. Now he's 30. 
and he's called young. Uh, let's say he was 20. Now he's 35. He's being called young. All we know is that he was under 40. How do we know that? Because in Greek society, you are called young until you're out of military age. You stop being military age at 40. So we know he was under 40 and you go, well, 40 is decently mature enough to be able to run stuff. Why are they giving him a hassle? Because in Greek society, you weren't considered mature and done with childish things till around 50 or 60. As a matter of fact, it bled into the church there in some of the earliest writings. They wouldn't allow a bishop to be a bishop until the age of 50. Here we have Timothy under 40 leading all the elders. So he's getting a lot of heat from society going, who are you? You're a kid. What are you doing? What are you like 38? What is that? Come on. That's my age. December, I turned 39. So Timothy is around my age and all the guys are going, what is that? I'm, I'm looking at your hair, buddy. I'm not seeing a lot of white. You know, you ain't got nothing. So Timothy would back off and Paul said, no, 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 no. We're not doing that. Uh, I set you there in place. God put you in place. Let's do this. Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, but set an example for the believers. Man, they will respect you if you lock in and set an example because they're not interested in your chronological age. They're interested in whether or not you can lead them. If you will set an example and be locked in with Jesus, they will fall in line. Do we role model for each other? All of us do. Let me tell you a really cool story. The other day, um, I was praying with my daughter, Andy. She's a six-year-old. And <laughs> it was really funny because we started praying and I said, I go, Heavenly Father, please help us to sleep good tonight. She goes, yes, God. <laughs> and I said, I, I didn't want to break right there, so I kept going. And I said, I go, and help us to have good dreams. Yes, God. I was like, is she agreeing with me in prayer? What, what is going on here? And I said, um, and thank you, Lord, for all that we have. Amen. She goes, did you hear me say yes, God? And I said, I go, yeah, I did. That was really, uh, what was that all about? She goes, grandma does it. <laughs> the night before my mom was watching the kids and prayed with Andy and agreed in prayer and said, yes, Lord. So she immediately role modeled it and tried it out. <laughs> okay. We never grow up from that. We're all role modeling. We're all growing up. Set an example for other believers in speech, personal conversation, in life, lifestyle, in love. That word love is agape. If there's any word we need to lock down in our vocabulary, it's agape. Because it's a big Christian love word. Agape means unstoppable love. You can't shut it down. If I agape this congregation, that means no matter what you do to me, I will seek your best. No circumstance can shut it down. No bad attitude can shut it down. No fight can shut it down. No disappointment can shut it down. It's unstoppable. That is the love that God has for us. That is the love we must have for one another. Set an example in agape, in faith or loyalty, and in purity, adhering to what God stands for. Understand, this is a young man likely unmarried in the middle of Sex Central. He's in Ephesus. Brutal place. 
Paul goes, I get it, man. You set an example for him. So he says, until I come back, Paul's on his fourth missionary journey. He's currently in Macedonia. Until I come back, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Get out there, son. Get out there, rebuke, exhort, correct, encourage, comfort, all that's loaded in there. Systematically train through. Tell them what they need to know. Understand how to learn through the word. Publicly read it. Get out there. Let everybody know what does God's word say. That is your mandate. It's interesting. What was the early church service like? One of the earliest or the earliest recording we have of a church service is from Justin Martyr in 170 A.D. Picture this, John wrote the book of Revelation in 95 AD, so now we're shooting out about, what, 75 years. 75 years out, he wrote this down, he said, this is what our church service is like. On the day called the day of the sun, we call that Sunday, a gathering takes place of all who live in the towns or in the country, and we all come together in one place. The memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. Yeah. Then the reader stops and the leader by word of mouth impresses and urges to the imitation of these good things. Then we all stand together and send forth our prayers. That was the earliest reading. He said, Timothy, get out there and preach the word. Do not neglect your gift. That word in Greek means don't be careless with it. Don't you let it go unused. Use it. That was given to you through a prophetic message when the body of elders, the presbytery, laid hands on you to commission you. But be diligent in these matters. Focus on it. Give yourself wholly to them. Live in them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and your doctrine closely, kid. Because if you don't know where you're at, you're going to fall and you're done. Persevere in these things. Hang in there. Grow in them. Because if you do, you're going to save both yourself and your hearers. All right, let me close with two challenges. One challenge, two questions. Every day of your life, I want you to ask yourself two questions. The first one is, am I where I need to be spiritually? Am I where I need to be spiritually? Obviously, that would involve you saying, well, yes or no, and then what do I need to do? Unfortunately, most of us stop at question number one. Make sure you push on to question number two. Are the people around me spiritually where they need to be? It is not just about your spiritual life. You're here for me. And I'm here for you. Are the people around me where they need to be spiritually? And how do I bless them to get them there? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. I pray, Lord, that you would change us. You would use us despite our wickedness and our rebellion. I pray that, Lord, somehow, some way, we would grow up to a place where we would join in with you in doing the things to change this world. And I pray that you would empower us to make the changes necessary to be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.